I was a, a proponent of doubt, not of belief. Belief where there's evidence of belief. I was raised always to doubt what I hear. And when I was growing up, it did not change. It just became more sophisticated. And I always would ask the question, why? Why? Long before George Karadze worked for Dr. Fata, his career in healthcare began with journalism. For Health Talks, I'm George Karadze. That drive to investigate comes naturally to George. When he sees something wrong, he addresses it. In the early 90s, George was working part-time for a sleep lab while he was getting his master's degree. Part of his job as the medical staff was to prepare and submit the billing slips for the tests that were done, which George found odd. Billing seemed like a job for the billing department. As he was preparing the billing slips for the sleep studies, he noticed something even more odd. EKG, a respiratory channel, and EEG, these were all called polysomnograms, collectively. Typically, the doctor would bill the insurance for a single bundled test. But what they were doing is unbundling the components of a sleep test and submitting them separately. Doing that allowed them to get seven, eight, 10 times the revenue from each test they were doing. So they were making a ton more money than they would otherwise. And they were getting paid. George realized that was why the technicians were being asked to do the billing. If the doctors got caught, they could say it wasn't their fault. And the implications of that is that Medicare or Medicaid or Blue Cross or anyone else that was looking at it two, three, five years later can see the technician's name that they had signed it and they could suspect that they were involved or even did it themselves. George filed a complaint with Blue Cross, copied everything he needed to prove the fraud, and put in his resignation. Three years later, George was at home washing dishes when he got a phone call. When he answered, he didn't recognize the voice. And he said he was from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Part of me was saying, holy cow. Part of me was saying, well, it's about time. The FBI wanted to talk to George. And they said, well, can we come over now? And I said, well, I don't see why not. I'm not doing anything. I looked out the window and they had been parked in front of my home. And I guess they just wanted to find out if I'd run for whatever reason. He watched as two agents stepped out of a black Mercury marquee. It looked like the men in black. And then as soon as they open up the door, they flashed their badges. They said, can we come in? And I said, sure. And they sat down and in my living room, like as if they were friends. George told the agents what he knew, and they asked if he still had any documents. They were surprised that I had actual copies of everything. At some point, George asked the agent if there was anything he could do to avoid getting found out as the informant. He was afraid he wouldn't be able to find a job again. I explained to him that I was kind of concerned about blowback, about the hospital finding out that I turned them in, and is there any kind of protection against us? Uh, my being blacklisted. And he said he had heard about a law that was on the books. It's for whistleblowers. And he said, I would look into it if I were you, if you want to be able to protect yourself. Those documents he'd kept were his first line of defense. If you can prove it, something serious is this, then you not only make your case stronger, but you protect yourself in the event that you were questioned or considered a suspect. You have to keep documentation. You learn that if you're in healthcare. Always keep documentation. 
a lesson that would come in handy again when he needed to make a case to the authorities about what he'd seen as the office manager for Dr. Fata. We are pleased to have Simply Safe as our presenting sponsor. With Simply Safe Home Security, you get award-winning protection around the clock with security professionals standing by in case of an emergency to immediately send help to your home. This is serious, lasting protection, and all it takes is a simple 30-minute setup. You'll even get a free security camera when you protect your home today. More on that in a moment. Simply Safe's arsenal of sensors and security cameras blankets every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in no time at all without any tools or wiring, which means no technician or salesperson has to step foot in your home. Over the years, I've installed my Simply Safe system three times. If you understand double stick tape, you are a qualified Simply Safe installer. With Simply Safe, there's no contract, no hidden fees, and no installation costs. It's why U.S. News and World Report named Simply Safe best overall home security of 2020. Right now, visit simplysafe.com/doctor and get a free security camera plus a 60-day risk-free trial with any new system order. Go to simplysafe.com/doctor. That's simplysafe.com/doctor. From Wondery, I'm Laura Beale, and this is season two of Doctor Death. This is episode three of five, Living with This Hell. In the days following his conversation with Dr. So Monglay, George kept replaying what he'd heard. Administering chemotherapy to patients without need, giving them chemotherapy to the very last day of life. You leave now if you can. He couldn't believe it was true. That seems a little outlandish. I had to stop myself from laughing. I thought it was more like he wanted to start his own practice and get out of his contract. George thought it over, and the more he thought about it, the more it changed the things he'd heard from other employees in the past. I started thinking about all of the other nurse practitioners or doctors that would say things like, we shouldn't have given this medication to a patient, and the doctor saying, you know, I'm not comfortable with this care plan. And then I began to think maybe some of what he's saying is true. George started poking around. He took a stack of medical records to his office. And then he thought that might make him look suspicious. So he put them back. He made a spreadsheet with all the patients Dr. Fata had seen from the last year and noted how many of them received treatment as a result. And what I saw with the other physicians were every 10 patients that they saw in consultation, maybe two or three would get treatment. But with Dr. Fada, out of the 10 patients, between 80 and 90% of patients were getting some form of treatment. So if you're seeing Dr. Fada, you're getting treatment. It certainly seemed suspicious, but he needed a second opinion. He called up an attorney he knew. He said, George, this sounds very serious, but you have to have strong proof. You're going against a doctor who is very prominent, and this could be easily refuted. So if you happen to run into more information that corroborates Dr. Mungley or anyone else, then call me again, and then we'll talk about it. George was stuck. He didn't want to search too much in the computer records because that would create a paper trail. With the right evidence, perhaps something could be done. George just needed to know where to look. 
Again, Dr. Monglay and George disagree about the details of their conversations, but in one, they talked about a key treatment Dr. Fata was using inappropriately. It was called IVIG. As it happened, there was one more person who was also getting suspicious of Dr. Fata. It was almost like he had to kiss his ring to get in to talk to him, to get any information from him. And it was like getting thrown into a movie where you just are thinking, what, what is going on here? Mary Sitterlitt had worked for Dr. Fata since the winter of 2010. Like George, she knew the place had its quirks. There were the chaotic patient loads. She already thought Dr. Fata was seeing so many patients that he couldn't keep up. I went in with a patient of mine that I was very close to, and she was trying to get clarification on her plan of care, and he was nodding off. Dr. Fata did this many times and often spent only two to three minutes with each patient. But this time, the patient was sympathetic to him. She felt for him, saying he's just exhausted. And I said, well, you've been waiting for this appointment for the last four and a half weeks and getting sick from chemotherapy, so I think you deserve somebody not to fall asleep when you're talking about your care. Michigan hematology oncology wasn't an ideal place to work by any means, but Mary didn't have a ton of options. She was a single mom of a young son, and the commute was much more manageable than her last job. So she put up with Dr. Fata. I felt kind of trapped. Plus, I wasn't allowed to move more than 100 um, miles away from my ex-husband due to the law at that time. So I was stuck, basically, just trying to do what was best for my child. Mary is the type who gets fired up rather quickly when she sees something wrong, though she had never had to question a doctor before. So when she began to grow suspicious of Dr. Fata's care, she wanted answers. It started when the way he ordered chemo just seemed off. She suspected that he wasn't following protocol, that he wasn't calculating the doses by the patient's height and weight. A few times, she pressed Dr. Fata on this, and he always had an explanation. He would just say, it's a European protocol. I can choose the doses that I want. But, you know, he's the doctor, and he's the last say. And I mean, I'm not going to dose any chemo. That's not my license. In July of 2013, Mary had found something else that was strange. Dr. Fata was giving a drug treatment called intravenous immunoglobulin, or IVIG, more often than she'd seen other doctors prescribe it. The drug was for patients with compromised immune systems. At her last job, a hospital system with eight doctors, she saw about two to three patients a month come in for IVIG. But Dr. Fata saw about 50 patients a month at one location who came in for that treatment. It's very powerful, it doesn't have any side effects, but when given to the wrong person, it can cause some major problems. Mary did some digging. I went into my next week's worth of appointments and I had 40 patients who were scheduled for IVIG and I ran off all of their labs and I highlighted all of their labs and only two had ever qualified or needed it. Just two. Mary started to feel overwhelmed with the possibility of what could be going on here. But what through, what through my mind is, I have to find out if this is intentional or if this was a mistake or whatever, but I've happened upon this information and I need to do something with it, whether I keep my job or not. 
Mary confided in Dr. Mongle, and they discussed what to do. Then she went to Dr. Fata. And put the papers on his desk and said, these people don't need this medicine. The look on his face was his usual, just look over his shoulder, look up at you between his glasses, and not say a thing, but how dare you challenge me. Soon after, Mary says she was told to cancel all those appointments for the patients coming in for IVIG the following week. And so I canceled them and told them they would hear further from the doctor. Mary didn't usually talk medical stuff with George Karache, but sometime after, they ended up in a conversation in his office when IVIG came up. That's when George learned what had happened. I just said to him, Now that I've found this out, are we going to get in trouble for something we didn't do? What do you think is going to happen with this whole thing? I knew I had done the right thing, but it was just, you're kind of in shock. George thought maybe Mary and Dr. Mongle's concerns could all be explained. The issue with the IVIG patients had been resolved. He still didn't think he had enough proof until he happened to speak with another nurse, according to George. And she goes, no, George, you don't understand. IVIG is just the tip of the iceberg, just the tip. She goes, I'm leaving. George's head was swimming. What do I do? Do I leave now with the others? Do I, you know, get to the Department of Justice Right now, do I run over there to the FBI office? Or do I just pull a fire alarm and tell everybody to run for their lives? George called his attorney back and told him about the latest conversations he'd had. I remember uh, my attorney, uh, he said, stop doing what you're doing. Don't investigate anymore. At this point, let the FBI take over. He began to think about the implications of this and the scale. But I remember looking in that infusion suite and thinking about how these patients have no idea what's happening to them. They have their family sitting next to them in chairs, telling them jokes and stories. They're telling them, we're going to start to see a better you. It was all wrong. You couldn't tell which ones were getting harmed, which ones weren't. If the suspicions were true and Dr. Fada was hurting people, he was a criminal. This would need the attention of the Department of Justice. Now, with this new information in hand, George's lawyer contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office. It was one place that could stop Dr. Fata. Life can be stressful even under normal circumstances, but 2020 has rivaled even the most difficult of times. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes, and that's Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness, guided meditations, and an easy-to-use app, one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation for you. Need some help falling asleep? Still your mind with a wind-down session. And for parents, Headspace even has morning meditations you can do with your kids. It's something my daughter and I both enjoy to get ready for, well, a long day of looking at screens. Headspace can help reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. 
And it's backed by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash doctor. That's headspace.com slash doctor for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. We get support from at-home hair color company Madison Reed. Yep, that's right. At-home hair color made easy, fun, and ridiculously affordable, and you'll get beautiful results. A couple of our ad producers and hosts here at Wondery have tried Madison Reed. They've said their hair felt healthier after they colored it. That might be because Madison Reed products are made with ingredients like argan oil and keratin and with no ammonia, parabens, or sodium lauryl sulfate. From color matching to step-by-step instructions guiding you through the process to caring for your color, Madison Reed is there for you every step of the way. If you're ready to look like you went to the salon and to get those results on your schedule and at a fraction of the price, starting at just $22, head right now to madison-reed.com. Use our promo code DRPOD and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. That's promo code DRPOD. Visit madison-reed.com now to find your perfect shade. In late July 2013, FBI Special Agent Brian Drake had his first week in his new department, the Healthcare Fraud Squad in downtown Detroit. He's a broad-shouldered man with a trim square beard. Brian spent the last few years working on the terrorism task force, but now he was right where he wanted to be. We've had health issues in in my family, and I've seen how doctors sometimes treat patients and sometimes prescribe things that aren't necessary. And I've always wondered, you know, why are they getting away with this? July 31st was his third day on the job. It was a particularly scorching afternoon, and Brian was already sweating in his suit as he and his partner walked to their car. That's when their phones dinged. I had an email from my supervisor stating that on Friday, we have a meeting with the United States Attorney's Office. They have a a person coming in who is a whistleblower on a case that involved possible patient harm. Brian read the email. It certainly had his attention. He wondered aloud to his partner, how often are these allegations true? He's like, oh, it's, it's probably nothing. Realistically, Brian, by the time that we hear what they have to say and we go and investigate it, it's usually 10 to 15%. Two days later, on August 2nd, 2013, George, in a blue button-down shirt, waited outside the U.S. Attorney's office with his lawyer. George had steeled himself for this meeting. I have to be as calm and collected, incredible as I possibly could, because people's lives were at stake here. I went in thinking that it was going to be maybe one U.S. attorney and one FBI agent or someone from Health and Human Services that would listen. But when he entered the room, there were 15 representatives from five different government departments at a long conference table. There were investigators from the FBI, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the IRS, and prosecutors from the U.S. Attorney's Office from the Eastern District of Michigan and the Department of Justice's Criminal Division. George began to tell his story that an oncologist named Dr. Fareed Fata was purposefully misdiagnosing patients with cancer and overtreating patients who had cancer to bill for services. Brian Drake was furiously taking notes. 
my eyes are as big as saucers. Like, I'm like, are you kidding me? This is what's going on? Still, to Brian, it seemed too far-fetched. I'm thinking to myself, this, this can't be happening. No one would do this. A doctor wouldn't do this to his patients. The agents and attorneys each took turns peppering George with questions. Who's in the room with Dr. Fado when he sees patients for the first time? Who are the medical assistants who are in there? Who is the one handling the patients at the reception window? What are the other doctors in the practice? Do they have access to Fada's patients or patient records? Are there hospitals that he specifically goes to? Sometimes it got intense. One attorney brought out a stack of patient records. George was surprised that they were able to obtain them so quickly. She sat one in front of me and twisted it in front of my eyes and said, do you have any idea why this patient would have gotten 155 chemo treatments? And I explained to her that I thought you knew what I did there. I, I wouldn't know. George spoke clearly and eloquently. As far as Brian could tell, he didn't even seem nervous. But on the inside, George was afraid. I was interviewed by the best that Detroit had on the criminal and civil side. And I don't think anybody had gone through that kind of interview and not been nervous. I was. But I also had a bigger issue, and that is to get my story across to them. So I, I felt the, the message was worth more than my fear. It went on for three hours. I almost felt like I was a suspect. <laughs> and I later found out from my attorney that they do that to everybody. They got to make sure that they don't have somebody who also involved was turning in their, their employer and trying to pull the wool over the government's eyes. When George finished, it was 1 p.m. He was exhausted and hungry. He and his attorney took off for lunch to process what had just happened. And Dave looks at me and he goes, do you have any idea how big this is? And I said, no, not at all. He goes, no, George, you don't understand. This is the first time I've seen this kind of response and I've been doing this for 25 years. This is very big. Back in the conference room, the agents were still talking. We were all just like sat back in our chairs and went, so wow, what did we just hear? And so we talked about it between ourselves and we were like, all right, we need to get on this immediately. Because if the allegations were true, there were dozens, maybe hundreds of people in imminent danger. Once we hear about a patient's possibly being harmed, we don't need direct information that they are being harmed. The allegation that they're being harmed puts us in overdrive and we move fast. And in this case, we have never moved as fast in any other case that I've ever been a part of. They got in touch with another oncologist and hematologist. They sent him some of Dr. Fata's patient records and asked him to evaluate the standard of care given to these patients. Would he treat them? Would he treat them in that way? Did they have cancer at all? The FBI worked until midnight on Friday. At 7 a.m. the next day, they were back at it. I was Googling all the terms that George had told us about, all the medical terms. What is IVIG? We had to do a crash course in basic medical terminology when it comes to cancer and hematology, which was a little bit of a mountain to climb. Brian and the investigators spent the weekend trying to obtain more of Dr. Fata's medical records and learning about his practice. George's phone was ringing off the hook. Even into the night, up until midnight, things were going fast. The agents wanted more information about the staff at Dr. Fata's practice. By the end of the weekend, they heard back from the oncologist that they'd sent the patient's medical records to. 
He's like, yeah, that that patient, there's no reason to say that they have cancer because they don't. There's no reason to give this treatment for this patient. He going through a litany of things that were alarming to him, which allowed us to move fast. Next, the investigators needed to gather as much information on the employees as they could get. Where they lived, what cars they drove, how they proceeded with these interviews would be integral to the investigation based on the information that George provided. I asked him this question during the interview. Do any of the employees text each other, email each other, or are friends outside of work? George said yes. This was too important of a case to allow an interview to go south on us. Whereas when when I say that, I mean, we go interview somebody and they turn around and they go tell their buddy that they work with, hey, the FBI was just at my door and they were asking me all these questions about Dr. Fada. We can't have that. And I said, we need to do simultaneous interviews. At 7 p.m. on Monday, just three days after the interview with George, investigators paired up and descended on six employees' homes. One staffer was in her car about to leave when Brian stopped her. You, out of the car, now. Another agent knocked on an employee's door who answered and said, what's this about? He looked her right in the eye and goes, you know exactly what this is about. She put her head down and started bawling immediately. Mary Sitterlet was at home with her seven-year-old son. Actually, we were watching funny clips from Ellen DeGeneres, and I said, I'm going to go on her website and try to win tickets. So I did that and was basically in my pajamas, no bra, looking beautiful. That's when the investigators arrived. There was a pound on my door, and I looked through the peephole, and there were two gentlemen in suits with their backs turned to me so I couldn't see their faces. Mary answered the door, and the agents introduced themselves. They came in and showed their badges and said, we're here about Michigan Hematology Oncology, Dr. Fada. And I started crying, saying, what's going on? My sweet little boy sits up, and he screams, Mom, they're here from the Ellen DeGeneres show. We won the tickets. And I said, no, honey, I think we want something else. The investigators told Mary they wanted to ask a few questions. She started to panic. And I thought, why are they here? I mean, if this is about just the IVIG, this seems quite excessive. The agents asked Mary to recall several conversations from her two and a half years at Dr. Fata's clinic. They played good cop, bad cop. One was pretty nonchalant, one was more aggressive. They were trying to have me remember conversations from months and months past. Mary told them about the high volume of patients receiving IVIG. She also said that Dr. Fata seemed to overtreat patients, even patients who could no longer be helped. I think he was trying to give them hope that extra treatments were going to do good when in actuality they were hospice appropriate. Meaning that they were being given chemotherapy when, in fact, they should have been allowed to live out their final days in comfort. The agents questioned Mary for hours. They didn't allow her to change into something more appropriate or even leave their sight. Any time that I had to use the restroom, they had to stand outside the door with the door open. Or if I went outside to have a cigarette, they would have to sit right next to me so that they made sure I wasn't on my phone. Um, They were just monitoring my every move. It was after midnight when the agents finally left. Dr. Fata's next patient was in seven and a half hours, and the agents had no time to waste. 
Maybe you haven't always thought of socks as the perfect gift, but Bomba socks were made to give, literally. When you give a pair of super comfortable Bomba socks, you're not only giving someone a gift they'll love, you're also donating to someone in need. Because for every pair of socks Bomba sells, they donate a pair to someone experiencing homelessness across the U.S. Bombas are the most comfortable pair of socks you and everyone on your gift list has ever worn. No annoying toe seams, no slipping or slouching, and their special midfoot support system makes wearing them feel like a warm hug for your feet from a close friend who's fun and colorful and made of cotton. And since socks are the number one most requested clothing item in homeless shelters, the generosity of giving Bombas will make a meaningful impact this holiday season. They've already donated over 4 million pairs of socks through their nationwide network of over 3,000 giving partners. From comfort to kindness and everything in between, Bombas aren't just givable, they were made to give. Go to bombas.com slash doctor today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash doctor. Bombas.com slash doctor. Britney Spears is one of the most famous pop icons of the 21st century. But the more famous she got, the more harmful the press became until finally it was all too much for her to handle on her own. Stay tuned till the end of this episode to hear a preview of the latest season of Even the Rich, Free Britney. Brian Drake and the other agents gathered to assess what they had and what they needed to do. Each employee had given the investigators a few odd puzzle pieces, but one thing was consistently the same. All the employees had specific jobs and were only allowed to do specific things. What one employee said was a rumor another had witnessed. The more pieces the investigators put together, the more sadistic this puzzle was beginning to look. But no single employee had been able to see the entire picture. There was one interview that helped pull that puzzle together. An agent from HHS told Brian about his conversation with Dr. Mongley. Mongley and his wife actually had their laptop up and open to healthcare fraud investigations that were being investigated as the agents walked through the door to interview him. He had told us that he was looking at those to find out how he can get in contact with somebody to report what he had been seeing. This is the horrible disease that affects entire family and friends, and he is labeling this horrible disease to people who doesn't have cancer. And that was so cruel. That's Dr. Mongley. He described working with Dr. Fata as living with this hell. Dr. Mongley told the FBI about a litany of suspicious behavior. He said Dr. Fata administered chemo to patients long past the point that it could help them, depriving them of their right to die in peace. He kept patients on treatments for months, sometimes years longer than any other physician would. None of it felt right to him, he told the FBI. He submitted his resignation in June. But before he could leave, something else happened. None of the doctors in FADA's practice are allowed to round on FADA's patients. FADA does not allow that. He never has. This was an anomaly. Dr. Mongley told the FBI that in July, Dr. FADA took a trip, which was rare. While he was away, one of his patients who had just received her first round of chemo had an accident. She had a suitcase in her hallway upstairs, and she tripped over a suitcase and fell down her stairs and broke her leg went to the hospital. While Dr. Mongley was checking on her... She said she recently got chemotherapy. I thought she was not describing me things correctly. And uh, there were blood chemistry tests done in the hospital that shows that she has nothing wrong with her blood tests. 
I, I felt like I'm missing something. He reviewed her chart and uh, he's like, okay, well, you do not have cancer and you should not come back to Dr. Fada. That information, Brian said, was the icing on the cake that gave the investigators confidence that they had enough to go after Dr. Fata. George was at home Monday night when he got a call from one of the FBI agents. Do you know when Fata goes to work? And I said, yeah, tomorrow he's going to work at 7 o'clock. He's going to St. Joe Hospital because I pull the information like I have on my computer and I found that Dr. Fada was doing a bone marrow biopsy that day at 7.30. Investigators worked all night and into the early hours of the morning getting their complaint together. It was just before 4 a.m. when it was complete. Now, they just needed a judge to sign it. To get to the magistrate's house, we had to go lights and sirens from our office to his house. I've never done this before. We blew past the Michigan State Trooper on the way. Like, he was standing still, and he was driving about 70, and we went a lot faster than that. He was very gracious meeting us at the door. He was in his uh, pajamas, which is something you, you don't see very often. They're usually in suits and in their black robes. They had search warrants for each of Dr. Fata's clinics and his home and an arrest warrant. Brian handed the judge the paperwork. He spread the pages out on a table and began to read through each of them. Like any judge attempting to maintain impartiality, he didn't say much. But to Brian, the judge seemed uncomfortable based on his body language. Uh, I think he was like, wow, like, whoa. (laughs) I mean, because I don't think they see much of uh, cases like that. I know I hadn't seen any, and no, no one that I had talked to had seen a case like this. After an hour, all the papers were signed. That didn't give Brian and his partner much time to prepare for the arrest. They'd been over the plan time and time again, but there was no room for them to be wrong about even the smallest detail. Fata's first appointment was in two hours, and they had to make sure they got to him before he entered that exam room, before he poisoned anyone else. At 7 a.m. on August 6, 2013, four days after George first walked into the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, Brian was now racing to Dr. Fata's house, an arrest warrant in hand. We hear our surveillance team over the radio saying, you know, we see him out. And I'm like, oh, we're still like a half a mile away. Brian drove faster. It was important to arrest him at the right moment, before Dr. Fata saw his next patient. The chance came sooner than expected. An agent in the sheriff's car radioed Brian. When Dr. Fada came out of his development, he was late for his appointment. So because of that, there's a stop sign right at his development to the main road. Blew the stop sign, 100%. Just, he paused for not even a second. Didn't look, just took off. Brian arrived just as the sheriff was asking Dr. Fata to get out of the car. I jumped out, I'm still in my suit from the day before. I haven't slept and I'm running over to put the handcuffs on this guy and that first agent grabs it. Who's the case agent? And I'm like, that's me. He he pulls Dr. Fada back and he's like, here you go. Brian had arrested people before. They're usually shaking or trembling. Dr. Fata was aloof. He didn't say much of anything. He just nodded and said, okay. When I told him he was under arrest, that was it. He didn't speak other than that. He was taken to an investigator's office to be interviewed. An agent from the FBI and an agent from the Department of Health and Human Services did the questioning. They'd asked him, you know, do you know why you've been arrested? And he's like, I 
think I, I ran a stop sign. And the agent's reply was, do you think the FBI arrests people for running stop signs? While his colleagues questioned Dr. Fata, Brian headed to the doctor's estate, a lavish 6,000-square-foot home that backed up to a golf course. When he got to the basement, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The space was finished with doors that exited to a patio in the backyard. But to the left, there was another room. When Brian stepped inside, it was as if he entered a doctor's office lined with floor-to-ceiling file cabinets filled with patient records. There must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of patient records there. Brian knew Dr. Fata was a busy man, but he was about to find out just how busy he'd been since Michigan Hematology Oncology had opened its doors in 2005. In the end, he had 1,700 active patients at the time that we took him down. His total patient universe from the time that he started his practice until the time we stopped him, he had 16,000 patients. 16,000 patients. Going through those files, Brian would find out just how many lives Dr. Fata had ruined. From Wondery, this is episode three of five of season two of Dr. Death. To listen to both seasons of Dr. Death ad-free, you can join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. I'm your host, Laura Beale. Heather Schrering wrote and reported this story. Associate producer is Chris Siegel. Story editor is Casey Miner. Fact-checking by Jacqueline Coletti. Additional production assistance from Daniel Gonzalez. Managing producer is Lata Pandya. Sound design by Jeff Schmidt. Our executive producers are George Lavender, Marsha Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery. It's January 30th, 2008, and Britney Spears is at her home in Beverly Hills. She lives in a gated community, a California specialty. There are gorgeous views of Los Angeles down below. Not that she can see them because the house is surrounded by privacy hedges. But it's one of those McMansion neighborhoods with a pool in every backyard. Her neighborhood is called The Summit, which is a little ironic because right now, Britney's close to rock bottom. For a decade, Britney's been America's biggest pop star. But right now, she's exhausted, pacing the floors of her mansion. She spent months in the courts fighting to keep custody of her kids. But a few weeks ago, she lost that fight. Damn, I'd be pacing the floors too and probably pulling out my hair. Oh my God, I know, it's awful. And now, Britney's vulnerable and raw and high on a potpourri of pills. Her mom showed up earlier today hoping to calm her down. If anyone can, it's Lynn Spears, a soft-spoken school teacher who's never far from Britney's side. Lynn wants Brittany to get out of the house. She got a tip that someone's going to try to have her committed to a psych ward. But Lynn's no match for what Brittany's going through. And Brittany's no match for what's about to happen. 20 cops storm into the house, stomping and shouting. What the hell is going on? That's what Lynn wants to know. One of the cops tells her, we've got a 5150, psychiatric hold. We're taking Brittany in. 
5150 is a code that means she's a danger to herself or other people and can be put into a psychiatric hospital against her will for up to 72 hours. On what grounds, Lynn demands to know. But the cop says they're just following orders. Orders from whom? Lynn doesn't know. Weirdly, Brittany seems barely phased by what's going on around her. It's only when paramedics strap her down on a stretcher that she calls out in a panic. Mama! I'm here, baby, Lynn shouts, running after her. But the paramedics block her path. They load Brittany into the ambulance and roll past the summit's gates, where a gang of paparazzi are furiously snapping pictures. This is insane, right? At the hospital, the first person to show up at Brittany's bedside is a guy named Sam Lutfi. Who's that? Yeah, he's... Well, no one's really sure what he is. Is he Brittany's manager, her spokesperson, her friend? Or is he some sort of creepy Svengali? It's hard to say, but it doesn't matter right now because Brittany trusts him. She's probably glad to see him. But Lynn? Not so much. When she arrives and finds Sam at Brittany's bed, she explodes. You put her in here, she shouts. Sam claps back. You're the one who always causes drama. Brittany begs them to stop shouting, stop fighting. Sam leaves to get some food. Lynn leaves too, probably to cool down. A little while later, Brittany can hear a knock on her door. It's her mom, but the door doesn't open. The doctors outside won't let Lynn in. Then there's another knock. Brittany can hear Sam out in the hall, but again, the door stays closed. The doctors won't let him in either. So she's all alone? Yeah, and it's gonna get worse. Tomorrow, Lynn Spears and her ex-husband Jamie will petition a judge for a restraining order against Sam Lutfi. Then they'll take it a step further. They'll ask for a temporary conservatorship and a judge agrees to grant it, putting Jamie in charge of Britney's assets, her comings and goings, and her entire life. Wow, that's heavy stuff. Well, buckle up, because that's just the beginning. Oh, baby, baby. (laughs) 